Hey, last week we started the book of Exodus. We're in the second chapter today, just the very first 10 verses. I've entitled the message, you know, The Paper Thin Plan. You'll understand when we get there. But uh, as we begin this morning, I just want to start with this. An Oklahoma man went uh, to extreme measures to impress his wife in 2004. Trent Spencer, a 27-year-old high school teacher, paid two teenagers $100 each uh, to break into his house and tie up his wife. After she was bound with duct tape, Spencer raced in and quote-unquote fought off the quote-unquote intruders, right? He even pre-cut a board so it would break when he hit one of them with it. So, the police were called and began an investigation. The plan might have worked except one of the teenagers blabbed to his parents. So surprisingly, when the police found out, they didn't arrest Spencer. Instead, they slapped him with the bill for the investigation. Guys, I do not recommend this paper-thin plan. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. You know, when I think about uh, paper-thin plans, um, I've told you the story before. I was in high school. I worked at Chick-fil-A at the time, and uh, some friends of of mine from Woodruff and I decided we were going to go to another friend's house, and we were going to decorate his yard with toilet paper, right? And it was going perfectly until that neighbor dog looked out the screen door and started barking, which drew the attention of the neighbor, which then got us hollered at as we're running down the street to hop into my vehicle to get out of there. But it was definitely a paper-thin plan that we had there. How many of us have gone ahead with plans that that we didn't really have great confidence in and we knew that they were paper thin. But we still went ahead with it, didn't we? We just hoped that it was going to work out, that it would be fine, that we would be able to, to accomplish whatever we were trying to accomplish. We learned last week that Pharaoh had ordered all of the Egyptians to be watching the Israelites to see when they had children. And if the baby was a boy, they were to throw it into the Nile River. If it was a girl, they could let the baby live. This was Pharaoh's desperate attempt to thwart God's plan of explosive population growth for the Israelites. So that was God's plan. He wanted them to grow just exponentially. But Pharaoh didn't really like that. We're not told how many Israelite families tried various ways to save their baby boys, but we will see one family's plan today that that involved papyrus, which was used as paper in the ancient Near East, Even though God is not mentioned in this narrative, we know that he's working out his perfect will for his people. He did it in an amazing way. And what we're going to learn today is this big idea, which comes from Marita's uh, commentary. God works out his perfect will in amazing ways. So let's commit it to the Lord in prayer today. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are almighty, that there is nothing that can thwart your plans. Lord God, there's nothing more powerful than you. And we thank you that, um, that you work even behind the scenes sometimes to accomplish your perfect will, and you do it in amazing ways, in incredible ways, in supernatural ways. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to just have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're trying to accomplish, what your will is, your perfect will in our lives individually and as a body of believers. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here because two or more are gathered together. Lord, I'm just a weak vessel today. I need your strength. I need you to speak through me. 
I can't do it in my own strength, Lord God. I would simply fail. And so I'm trusting you to speak to your people through your servant today. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just have two points today. Verses 1 to 4, we're going to be talking about riding the river. And verses 5 to 10, we're going to be talking about rescued by royalty. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4 as we begin uh, chapter 2. This is what God's Word says. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And so what we have here, and in fact, throughout this entire uh, 10 verses, there's only one name that's mentioned, but there's several, multiple people that are talked about, but only one name given. And so at this point, we don't have any idea who this baby's uh, parents are, who their name, what their names are, I should say. And uh, before we find out exactly who they are, we just need to realize that this is a continuation of the narrative from chapter 1. Pharaoh's population control order was still in effect at this point. Every Egyptian was to spy on the Israelites to see whether their newborn babies were boys or girls. And if they were boys, they were to be thrown into the Nile River. And if they were girls, they were allowed to live. And in the middle of this horrible order, we find a young couple with a dilemma. And so it says here that a man married a woman. While the man and woman are not named here, we know their names from later in Exodus. If you flip over to Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, we read these words. <clears throat> Amram married his father's sister, um, Yohared, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. So just from a little bit further on, we see that both Amram and Yohared descended from Levi's line. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, we learn that Amram married his aunt, his father Kohath's sister. Now, that was okay at this point. But eventually, as we get into the laws and like to, in Leviticus and such, we realize that this was no longer allowed. It was prohibited from that point on, marrying within the family that closely. We see their heritage here. They were both from the line of Levi, the reason for specifying his parents' uh, heritage instead of their names emphasized that they were both um, Israelites or Hebrews. This was going to be important. Being of the tribe of Levi would be significant as Moses' role was eventually revealed as the religious and spiritual leader to the Israelites. And the tribe of Levi would be the tribe that served the Lord as priests and most of the court judges, as we see in Deuteronomy, or <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 5. After getting married, the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, the way that it's written here, it makes it sound sounds like this baby is their very first baby. But we realize, as we continue to read through the book of Exodus and other places, we realize this is not their first child. This is their third child. In fact, Miriam is the oldest the daughter that we're going to see in just a moment, and they had another son who was about three years old at this time whose name was Aaron. <clears throat> and we see them obeying the letter of the law, right? This baby was born, it was a boy, 
and they're going to put him in the Nile River. But they weren't going to quite do it in the way that Pharaoh had wanted them to, correct? So they're obeying the letter of the law. Yohared saw that her baby boy was a fine, good, and beautiful child. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of any parent who would look at their child after they're born and say, this child is poor, bad, and ugly, right? Most of us aren't doing that as parents. Most parents are partial to their children and think that they are smarter, better, more talented, and more attractive than anyone else's children. And some of us would disagree. With, but, but I think it's great that God placed this partiality in the heart and mind of every parent to help them understand that they need to be loved. These children need to be loved. And so for Moses' parents... I think it was more than just that he was a good-looking boy. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, we read these words. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, the New Living Translation says that he was an unusual child, but most of the translations of the Bible, the modern translations, uh, have it as beautiful, comely, fair, goodly, or proper. So perhaps God had put something in uh, these parents' hearts that let them know that their baby boy was destined for something great. So it was. Nice that God had a special plan for his life. They hid him for three months. This probably wasn't difficult for them to do because they had a toddler in the house, Aaron. He was three years old. And any time that, there were, that, that this new baby, Moses, would cry, they probably were able to just, you know, kind of say, oh, that was Aaron, he was having a bad day, right? This three-year-old was just throwing a fit. <clears throat> and so they were able to do that for a period of time, but eventually that time ended. You know, I don't know about you, but I think that the Israelite couples at this time were, were just so cautious about revealing a pregnancy to their neighbors, they couldn't even rejoice in the fact that they were expecting a new child because they had no idea if it was going to be a boy or a girl, right? They had just, just a fear and trepidation the entire pregnancy. For nine months, they're wondering. They're not telling their family members or their neighbors, hey, we're expecting. And if they did, I'm sure the Egyptian neighbors were watching to see when the baby was born and whether it was a boy or a girl, and so after three months, Yohared realized that uh, she would not be able to hide him much longer. So she devised a plan, and I call it a paper-thin plan simply because uh, the, the, the reed-like plant that she used had many uses in the ancient Near East, but mostly for paper to write on. Two commentators say this. first one says this. Papyrus was a reed that grew abundantly on the banks of the Nile, its inner pith was split <clears throat> and pasted together to provide a surface for writing. But the Egyptians used it for many other purposes as well. Shoes, baskets, containers of various sorts, and boats. And then Kyle and Dillich in their commentary say it had a triangular stalk about the thickness of a finger, which grew to the height uh, of 10 feet, and from this the lighter Nile boats were made. <clears throat> While the peeling of the plant uh, was used for sails, mattresses, mats, sandals, and other articles, but chiefly for the preparation of paper. So she's got this basket, this papyrus basket. She covered it with tar and pitch and to make it watertight. <clears throat> the Hebrew word used for basket here is uh, teva. And the Hebrew word literally means 
ark. The only other place that this Hebrew word is used is in Exodus <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 5. We'll see that in just a minute. And then the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. I think that's fascinating. The one in, in Genesis protected Noah and his family so they could save humanity by repopulating the earth. And this tiny ark was going to protect Moses who would save and deliver God's people from slavery. Neither of them were going to drown in the waters that were coming. And so this takes us back to our first principle today, that God can be trusted to protect his people. When the ark, quote-unquote, ark was finished, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, which would have kept it from floating away, so he wasn't going to go downstream. And Wearsby says, Yohared obeyed the letter of the law when she put Moses in the waters of the Nile, but certainly she was defying Pharaoh's order in the way she did it. She was trusting the providence of God, and God didn't fail her. So she kind of sticks him in the reeds so he doesn't float away. She certainly obeyed Pharaoh. She put her son in the Nile. Our second principle today is simply this. God's providence is mysterious and amazing. Have you ever experienced that before? His providence is simply this, his guidance and care for us. I don't know about you, but sometimes God's guidance and care for me is mysterious. I don't always understand what he's doing. But I've heard his voice, and he said, I want you to do this, or I don't want you to do that. So he's made it very, very clear, but I'm sitting there confused. I'm like, well, I thought that this was the direction I was supposed to go. I thought that this was what I was supposed to be doing. But you're saying no. And so I, I, sometimes I just have to rest in that, that God's providence is mysterious. But then I see how it's amazing at the other end. Because eventually I understand his guidance and care for me. And I realize how amazing it is to be within his will, his perfect will and plan for me. Have you ever experienced the mysterious and amazing providence of God in your life? Did you find it mysterious and confusing at times? Like, God, I just don't understand why you're asking me to do this. Were you amazed after you obeyed his guidance? You're like, oh, now I get it. Thank you, Lord. Because had I gone that way, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have experienced that blessing. Remember that God will not fail you. You can trust him. You can trust his providence, even when you don't understand. So maybe you just need to take that second next step to dance to trust in God's mysterious and amazing providence in my life. That's what Yohared did when she placed her son in the basket and put him in the Nile. She didn't know what God would do, but she trusted him nonetheless. God was going to use Moses' sister to work out his perfect plan in an amazing way. That's our big idea, right? God works out his perfect plan in amazing ways. We know from uh, later in Exodus that Moses' sister's name is Miriam. We're not told if her parents instructed her to watch from a distance or not. She was probably young enough, around 10 years old perhaps, to not have any uh, responsibilities around the home or to be in the brick field or the farm field working on the bricks for the Egyptians. She was just another key woman in God's perfect plan. And as she's watching over her baby brother in the quote-unquote ark, a group of women come to the river. Let's look at verses 5 to 10. This is what God's word says. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. 
She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it up and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got, got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. <clears throat> and so as we look at this second point of rescue by royalty, the first thing we see is this ark encounter. Not the one in Kentucky. Not that one. This was a different ark, a much smaller ark. <clears throat> we see this ark encounter. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to take a bath. Now, we're not given her name probably for the same reason the parents' names are not given in, the ver in verse 1, and the sister's name is not given in verse 4. The focus needs to be on the child who will deliver the Israelites from slavery. So that's the focus here in this passage. Her bath may have been for hygiene purposes or religious ritual purposes, but probably both. Her attendants were walking along the riverbank to ensure her privacy. They would alert her to any intruders or kind of shoo them away. Like, get out of here. Pharaoh's daughter is taking a bath right now. And then Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket nestled among the reeds, and she was able to see it from her perspective because of being in the water, which gave her this just perfect angle to see this little you know, dark uh, object stuck in the reeds. And her attendants probably didn't see it because the reeds uh, that were growing up along the bank of the river. So she sent her slave girl, which was probably her personal assistant, to get it. But we see Pharaoh's daughter's attitude. After opening the basket, she saw and heard the baby crying. Her maternal instincts override every other emotion. She felt sorry for him. Now, most English translations say that she had pity or compassion for him. And, but what we see in uh, Hamilton's commentaries, he says this, one could translate, she took pity on him, but I prefer had compassion. One difference between pity and compassion is that pity means to feel sorry for, while compassion means to feel with. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the priest and the Levite have pity, but no compassion. They feel sorry for the victim, but it stops there. Not so with the Samaritan, and not so with this princess. She does not simply feel a brief, of, a brief tinge of sorrow and then get on with her bathing. You see, she didn't feel the same way towards the Hebrews as her father did. Her attitude should have been callous, a disregard for human life, but it is compassion instead. And while she was probably not a follower of the true and living God, he and his providence, sovereignty, and will filled her heart with compassion for this crying baby boy. Now, I don't want us to miss this part here. She understood the sanctity of human life, didn't she? I believe that God placed that in her heart. I believe God did the same thing with the two midwives that we saw last week. He put in their hearts the importance of the sanctity of life. They realized that it was not their role, as the princess is realizing too, it's not her role to give and take life. It's only God. God is the only one who has the right to give and take life. 
And so when we think about that for our culture today, boy, I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I was pretty excited when that ruling came down from the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, right? Our nation was returning to the belief and understanding that the sanctity of human life is in the hands of God Almighty, not in the hands of a human being who's fallible. Aren't you glad for that? And here we see it last week. We see it again this week. The sanctity of human life was so important, and that's a, a key point for us as believers today. Even after identifying him as a Hebrew baby, she does not just chuck him in the river, right? She's like, oh, it's a Hebrew. You know, she's in the water, right? She could have just, just dumped him right in there. She didn't. Her attitude was different than her father's. And so that, ta again, takes us back to principle number one, that God can be trusted to protect his people. He was protecting this baby because he had an important role for him in the future. As the princess is holding the baby, his sister springs into action. She offered aid, right? She offers to go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him. And the princess agrees to this plan and tells the girl to go. So the girl goes and gets her mother, <laughs> the mother of the baby. <clears throat> Stuart, in his commentary, not me, uh, Douglas Stewart, uh, that says this, the turning point of the story is contained in a one-word command, that of the princess, go. With that decision of the king's daughter, Moses' protection was assured. You see, that takes us back to our big idea that God works out his perfect will in amazing ways, right? Moses is going to grow up right under the nose of, of, of the Pharaoh in Egypt. He's going to be protected by the, 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 the ruler that wanted to take his life, right? How amazing that God works out his perfect will. And so when Yohared returned with her daughter, the princess instructed her to take the baby and nurse him for her, and she would pay her. Wow. Wow. What an amazing turn of events, right? This mother who had trusted in God's providence was rewarded in two ways. She would be able to raise her son without fear of him being killed by the Egyptian authorities. She would just simply say, hey, this is the, I'm nursing this child for the Pharaoh's daughter, right? He was protected. And she would be paid by the princess to nurse and raise her own child. Come on the goodness of God. Wow. I think that's incredible. It kind of leads us to our third principle today, that God is our provider. Yohared knew that God had provided for her. He had provided life and safety for her son. He had provided income for her family. God provides for us too when we trust in his providence, his guidance and care for us. He will provide guidance for our future, like what school we're supposed to go to, what job we're supposed to have, what, how many children we're supposed to have, if they're supposed to be natural or adopted, what, what our finances are going to look like, where we're supposed to live, how we're going to retire, and the list goes on and on. He will provide care for us in our weakness. He'll provide healing in our sickness. Aren't you grateful for that today? He'll provide strength as we go through surgeries and healing provide comfort in our loss and so much more because he cares for us and even though his guidance and care may, may be mysterious we can trust that it will be amazing in the end and that leads us to our third next step today and that's to thank god for providing and you fill in the blank 
What are you grateful for, for God's provision in your life? You see, because God works out his perfect will in amazing ways. So Yohared, this mother who trusted in the providence of God, obeyed the princess's instructions. I would too. Right? Your child's protected. You're getting paid. Wow. And we see the adoption completed. When the child grew, grew older or, and the child grew, now we're not tell, told how long Yohared had her son, Stewart says that during this time, children were nursed for three to four years before they were weaned. McKay, in his commentary, mentions that the training for a young Egyptian prince may have started around nine to ten years old. So we don't know. It's probably in that age range from four to ten. But we don't know the exact age when the official adoption took place. But Moses was older than an infant. And when the time came, <coughs> Yohared took her son to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And we know from Scripture that she named him Moses because he, she had drawn him out of the water. Moses sounds like the Hebrew for draw out. So the naming of Moses shows that the princess is officially claiming him as her own. And Merida in his commentary says, What a perfect name given the fact that God would use Moses to draw his people out of Egypt. How, how incredible is that? Now, there's one thing that I don't want us to miss today, and that's kind of the two deliverers that we see, Moses and Jesus. Moses and Jesus have similar, some similarities in their lives. They both survived a desperate attempt of evil rulers, Pharaoh and Herod, to eliminate Hebrew boys. Isn't that interesting? They both were sovereignly chosen by God to save his people. Moses saved God's people from Egyptian slavery. Jesus saved God's people from sin. Aren't you grateful for that today? You know, when we think about the gospel, it's simply this, that we are all sinners. God's word tells us this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the perfection of God because of that sin in our lives. And if we die with that sin in our lives, Scripture tells us what we earn or deserve for our sin, and it's death. It's not a physical death. It's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God. Romans 6.23, the first half of that verse says that, for the wages of sin is death. But I also want you to understand that we are all loved by God. He has this, this everlasting love for us. It tells us in the Old Testament, therefore with loving kindness he draws us. And Paul, writing to the Roman believers, he says this, you know, God's love was demonstrated in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like God knew his plan and purpose. It was perfect. And he was working it out through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you and I might have life. And we're all able to be forgiven. The second half of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all are able to be forgiven of our sins. And it's because of what Jesus did for us. Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers in, in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, says this, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, so this fulfilled Old Testament Scriptures, and that He was buried and came alive again the third day according to the Scriptures. All of that was foretold hundreds of years before it ever happened. And Jesus fulfilled it perfectly so that we could be forgiven. 
And because of that, we can all become a part of God's family. John 1.12 tells us that. That whoever believes and receives the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives, we have the right to become children of God. Children not born of like a, a father's will, or, or naturally, but born of God. It's a spiritual rebirth that takes place in us. And so on the back of your communication card today, in the section that says, send me info about, there's the part that says, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you've never made that decision before, that's an incredible decision to make. Because you're going to turn from death to life. Because remember, what we earn or deserve if we die in our sin is death. Complete separation from God for all of eternity. But God says, you don't have to live in that realm anymore. If you just believe in my son and what he did for you on the cross, you can transfer from death to life. And we'll be able to spend eternity with God someday. We'll be able to experience that new heaven and that new earth that are coming. This earth, with all of its chaos, with all of its, everything that's going on that's just garbage right now is going to pass away. Aren't you, great? Aren't you glad for that? And he's going to restore this to the way it used to be when he originally created it. I can't wait for that day. I want you to go there with us. I want you to be a part of that. I want you to experience that. And so if you've never made that decision, make sure to mark that section on your communication card. And I'll be sure to get in contact with you this week. As we just review a little bit, who do you need to trust to God or trust God to protect and care for today? Do you need to trust in God's mysterious and amazing providence in your life? And what has God provided for you that you need to thank Him for today? As a body of believers, we can ask some of those same questions. Who do we need to trust God to protect and care for today? And, and what or who do we need to trust God's mysterious and amazing guidance and care for? What provision do we need to thank God for? Sandra McCracken writes in Christianity Today magazine, a few years ago, I sat on the front porch of an old farmhouse in Vermont with two friends. Above us at the corner of the house hung a hummingbird feeder. Tiny winged visitors stopped by intermittently to eavesdrop while sipping nectar from the glass globe. Hummingbird wings move at about 50 beats per second, but when they hover, hummingbirds can appear completely motionless, a miracle of fitness and form. God made these creatures to be a delicate display of paradox. They are still and active at the same time. These birds are a moving metaphor for the kind of trust that God outlines in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. You will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence. She goes on and says, When I think of God's grace at play in my own life, my most successful moments happen when I hold steady at the center. Confidence is not found in productivity, but in quietness of heart. Our plans are not like his plans. As the hummingbird moves, his wings are invisible to us. So, too, the work of God is often hard to see in the moment, but nevertheless, something remarkable is happening. This is what the Lord says. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? So, you know, those mysterious gods providence that's mysterious and amazing is happening whether we see it happening or not and whether we understand it or not and so i just want to encourage you today 
with this passage of Scripture. You know, we can trust Him completely for our children and our grandchildren and those beyond. I hope that you're encouraged and strengthened today and, and even challenged through God's Word. As the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings in the communication card, and as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the, the faith that we see in, in Miriam and in Hilharad and in, and in Amram. They, they entrusted their son to you when it seemed like there was no hope. Lord, I pray that we would do the same with our children and grandchildren. I pray, Lord, that we would just trust you for your guidance and care, even when we don't understand or see. We just commit ourselves to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just God's